Son, and Holy Spirit, we're grateful to be together. We're grateful to be in a warm spot in the midst of cold weather. Grateful to be together as a church family in this new year. Thankful for the opportunity to worship in this school. We continue to pray blessing over Sheridan Schools at Entrance 2018. God, as we look at your, your story this morning, we uh, ask that you'd help us to be open and honest about the things that we're afraid of in our lives. And we also pray that you'd give us supernatural courage to be willing to step into the spaces that are uncertain, that we're nervous about, that we have doubts about, that we're scared of. Help us to have confidence that comes from you so we might be the people that you created us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Good morning, everybody. We're in this series, Stephanie said, called Do Not Be Afraid, and if you didn't get a chance to hear her speak last week, you should check it out on the website. She talked a lot about how it's easy to not name the things you're afraid of and let your fears affect you in your life, uh, maybe without even knowing it. And the reality is that all of us have fear, it's a normal part of our lives, but it's very important to name those fears and kind of own them in order to be able to step through them. And so today I'm going to build on that message by talking about how we deal with the fear in our lives. How do we summon courage to, to step into the things that we now know we're afraid of? And as I started thinking about courage and fear, I remembered some of the conversations I've had with my little people in my house over the years who are really honest about what they're afraid of, okay? If you have trouble admitting what you're afraid of, just hang out with some elementary school kids for a little while, right? They're good at it. And I can remember even just a few years ago, uh, my kids regularly telling me that they were afraid to go upstairs, okay? They have a bedroom upstairs and there's like a play area up there, but almost none of them would go up there by themselves, right? I don't want to go upstairs, but all your toys are up there, and it's, you know, you sleep up there, it's, it's fine. No, I'm scared. I'm scared to go upstairs. And then here's, the, here's parenting fail number, I don't know what number, all right? So my, my like, gut response to this when I first started hearing it was to tell them there's nothing to be afraid of up there. Anybody else? Would that be, it'd be honest. Would you say that? You, some of you might be as dumb as me. Okay. So I'd say, look, there's, you know, what are you afraid of up there? And someone would say, there's monsters up there. No, there's not. There's no monsters. There's, there's dark shadows up there. It's nothing. Just turn the light on. There's lots of lights. Uh, they would just keep naming things, you know. I'm afraid of being alone. There's strange noises. There's closets. Dad. There's closets. <laughs> and for a long time, I was just like, look, guys. <laughs> Again, my, you know my parenting style is trying to be logical with little minds. It just never works. So you say, listen, there's nothing to be afraid of. You don't need to be afraid. Just go upstairs. It'll be fine, okay? And then as I reflect on it over time, and then you know, just thinking about it this week, I realized... That's why kids sometimes say, some of the kids that are here today might be able to tell us, that's why sometimes they go, you guys just don't get it. All you adults, you, you just don't get it. You don't understand what we're saying. And I think about it like, well, if I'm a kid and I can list off seven things that I'm afraid of, and my dad says, no, there's nothing to be afraid of, 
I have to start questioning whether my dad is connected to reality, right? And so I realized that telling my small children that there's nothing to be afraid of is the exact wrong approach, right? Because there are things to be afraid of. And in your life as an adult, there's plenty of things to be afraid of, right? We all have fears and we all need to name the fears and it's no good to take an approach to fear to just go, hey, there's nothing to be afraid of. That's just not true. The world's a dangerous place. We all have a lot of things to be afraid of, things we're dealing with, things we might deal with, the uncertainty of the future, plenty of things to keep you up at night, right? And so the question isn't how do we get rid of the fear or avoid the fear or repress the fear. Uh, the question is how do we summon courage to step into the things we're afraid of? What I should have been doing as a parent in those moments was not saying don't be afraid, but rather training my kids to say, when you're afraid, here's how you can still step into the things you're afraid of. You can know that Jesus is with you even if you're afraid there are monsters in the closet. You can know that your dad is right downstairs and can get upstairs in a relatively quick time should you need help. There are things in your life that can help you deal with your fear. Don't tell me that there's nothing to be afraid of. There is. But how do we deal with the fear? That's what this morning's conversation is about. How do we deal with fear as Christian people, distinctly Christian people? How do we deal with the fear in our lives? And I want to summon a story that will be familiar to some of you. It's in Matthew chapter 14. If you have a Bible with you, you want to pull your phone out or however you want to look at it, it'll be on the screen for you too. Here's a little background to the story, okay? I want, I want to suggest, the scripture doesn't say this directly, but I want to suggest that this is a fearful time of Jesus' life, okay, in this part of Scripture. And I think Jesus is experiencing some fear for these reasons. Right before the story I'm going to read you today, here are some things that happened to him. First, he went to his hometown, and he tried to share some of the gospel message they'd been preaching in places, and they eventually started going, who's this guy to tell us anything? Isn't this Joseph's son? We know his family. He's got no formal training. We don't really need to listen to this person. They were offended by him, and he actually had to leave town. So Jesus is dealing with rejection from the people that he knew best growing up. And then as he's leaving there and going to a new place, uh, he finds out, he receives word from his disciples that his cousin, John the Baptist, has been beheaded at a party that King Herod threw. So his cousin one of the persons that he would have the closest ministry relationship with, the one who was charged by God with kind of preparing the way for his ministry, was killed, was murdered by the king. So he gets thrown out of his hometown. His, his cousin is murdered. Jesus' response to these fears in Scripture is almost always to go and try to find a place to pray. So this is one thing we should take away from how Christians deal with fear. Jesus almost always says, I retreated, he says he retreated to find a quiet place to pray. When he was afraid, when he was experiencing fear, he tried to go and find a place where he could talk to his father. But when he's doing this, he's retreating to these remote places. People just keep following him. So they end up with these major crowds in random places. And then one of the stories right before this piece we're going to read this morning is when the thousands of people find him in one of these remote places 
and he starts teaching them and healing them, and it gets to the end of the day, and they need some food, and the disciples say, send them to Chick-fil-A, and he says, there's no Chick-fil-A, so you feed them. And they end up feeding more than 5,000 people by just taking a few fish and a few pieces of bread and breaking it up and feeding everybody miraculously. So that's the lead-up. He gets thrown out of his hometown. His cousin is killed. He's trying to just find a spot to be by himself so he can pray. He ends up feeding tens of thousands of people probably, and his disciples are still really struggling to believe in most of the things that he's saying. He's in a lonely and a fearful place, I think. And so he sends the disciples out in a boat once again so he can try to find a little peace and quiet and pray. And here's the story that I want to share with you this morning. Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. This is right after they feed thousands of people. And go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage! It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter said, tell me to come out to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. In the midst of all this fear, Jesus sends these disciples out. They get into trouble. They've been on the water all night. They're tired. There's a storm. They're struggling to even keep the boat going straight. Jesus has been up most of the night praying, we think. It's right before dawn. He walks out onto the water. And I know for some of you, you might say, okay, well, pause. People don't walk on water. That sounds kind of crazy. But for Matthew's readers, the people who would have read this story, they probably wouldn't have thought that much about the scientific problems with somebody walking on water because they were used to worshiping the God who split the Red Sea and brought their people through, so a guy walking on the water wouldn't have been that hard for them to believe. And they would have connected the dots between some stories in the book of Job and the book of Psalms where it said that God would walk on water when the Messiah came. And so Jesus comes walking out on the water, which you know is nothing compared to being risen from the dead. And so Matthew's readers wouldn't have had a hard time uh, believing that the way we might struggle with it. And so it's not really Matthew's main point to say Jesus could walk on water. Instead, he's trying to show a story about how Jesus teaches the disciples to deal with their fear. And this statement in Matthew 14, 
verse 27 says, take courage, which in the Greek is a plural command. So it's not like a suggestion. And you can imagine in the middle of a storm, Jesus is yelling a command at them in the boat. They're panicking. He's walking on the water. They have many reasons to be freaking out. And his response to them is to go, take courage. Another way to translate it in the Greek is, is for him to say, have confidence or take heart, steal yourself. I'm with you. You don't have to be afraid. Now, I have to confess, as I'm studying this and I'm hearing Jesus and I'm trying to imagine myself in, one of, in the boat, I'm, I'm also then putting myself and connecting the dots with some of my kids where it sounds a little bit like, hey, don't worry about it. Don't be, don't, there's plenty of things to be afraid of at this point, right? We're in the middle of a storm. Seems like we're going to die. You're walking on the water. Things are a little different right now. Forgive me if I'm feeling a little nervous. But this is what's amazing about the way Jesus approaches this whole thing with them. He yells at them, take courage, as if he knows they can do that. As if he knows that they have it in them to be courageous in that situation. As if he knows for all of us that there's somewhere deep inside of us that if he calls it out, if he invites us to have faith, even though the storm is raging, we can do it. You notice this isn't a story where a, a, a guy who's also God glides across the water, jumps in the boat, and everything calms down. That would be a different story. He walks across the water and gets right up to the boat and then stops. And Peter, who's the only one with the kind of chutzpah to say this kind of thing, says, if it's you, tell me to come out onto the water. Why would you ask that? Wouldn't you just say, maybe start by calming the storm? They've been with him enough to know that anything that he does, they can do. So he stops because this isn't just about him changing their circumstances in the midst of their fear. It's about teaching them to step into the fear supernaturally. And Peter is the only one who gets that. And so he says, if it's you, tell me to get out. And Jesus says, come. So he gets out. And here's a really important part of how we learn to deal with fear in this story. Somehow Peter, at least for a few moments, is able to look at the circumstances of the situation. You've been on this boat for, I don't know, eight hours, ten hours, long time, all night. There's a storm. It's not looking good. There's a ghost-like guy hanging out right outside your boat. Somehow, because of his faith in Jesus, Peter's able to look at that set of circumstances and see beyond the scientific reality and go, I think I can walk out there too. And I know that for lots of us, when we're facing some circumstances, and I know lots of stories in this room, when we're facing circumstances, when you just kind of look at it on its face value, you might go, there just doesn't seem to be a way for this to work out. Right? Anybody? A distinctly Christian response to circumstances that everybody faces is to go, even though it looks like this might not work out, 
God has a way of making those kinds of things work out anyway. That's why it's different when Christians enter into fear than anybody else, because we can have confidence that the God of the universe has already stepped into those circumstances on our behalf and knows the way out. It's not because somehow we're stronger than everybody else or we know how to like summon courage from some place. We actually need Jesus' courage to enter into us and draw us out into the circumstances. We can see things differently than other people can see them because we know that Jesus is the king of the universe. And if you don't see it that way, if all you see is a storm, then you never get out of the boat, right? All you see is what's in front of you, and you can't see anything beyond that. We need spiritual eyes to have the kind of courage that Jesus invites us into. So there's three things I want to summarize from the story that I think help us to learn as Christians how to have courage in the midst of fear. Here's the first one. We have to recognize that even when we're afraid, Jesus promises to be with us. Jesus promises to be with us. Now, that might sound like a simple thing, but you just heard Nicole telling her story. She said, when people started praying for me, I felt something different. My circumstance didn't change immediately, but I, I was experiencing my fear differently because the prayers of God's people helped remind me or helped me feel or sense or come into contact with the very presence of God. I could tell God is with me in the midst of this really hard stuff. And so I'm not, I don't have to be afraid in the same way that I was afraid before. Jesus reassures them, I'm not a ghost. I'm a real person, and I'm here to be with you. And before I calm the storm down, I want to invite you to step out into the storm with me. So having courage for us as Christians means that we remember that Jesus is with us in the midst of our fear. Okay? Having distinctly Christian courage means that we remember that Jesus is with us in the midst of our fear. Second point is that we realize that Jesus is inviting us to step out into the storm. So if we expect that praying and, and remembering that Jesus is with us is going to immediately change our circumstances every time, we're going to be disappointed, right? Anybody been disappointed in that direction before? But in this story, anyway, Jesus doesn't even see calming the storm as the most important thing to do right away. Instead, it's to train his disciples how to have this courage and to trust him by stepping further into the danger in order to address it. You have to have a very different perspective to even think that you can step out into those kinds of circumstances. And this is where Christian faith becomes so important. It's easy to look at our lives without any spiritual lens. It's, it's easy to look at the fears we have, whether it's financial fears or relational fears or fears about health or fears about our kids or fears about our jobs or whatever the fears are. It's easy to be agnostic about those fears instead of saying, I think God has some purpose for me in stepping into the things that I'm afraid of and I know that Jesus is going to be with me if I do that. As I was uh, reviewing some of Martin Luther King's writings this last week in preparation for tomorrow's holiday, one of the uh, sermons that he wrote had a section that jumped out to me. He said, in a sermon on courage, he says, courage and cowardice 
are antithetical, they're opposites. Courage is an inner resolution to go forward in spite of obstacles and frightening situations. Cowardice is a submissive surrender to our circumstances. Cowardice is a submissive surrender to our circumstances, letting circumstances dictate what's, how we're going to approach our lives. Man, and if anybody had the authority to talk about courage, it was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., wasn't it? He spent years under death threats, years, traveling the country, trying to share his vision for what it would be like to experience some racial reconciliation and racial justice. And he would go from town to town regularly knowing that his life was at stake. He died when he was 39 years old, which is the same age I am. And as I was thinking about him writing from jail or writing from a hotel room where he had to have lots of guards around him, I thought, I can't, seriously can't even imagine what kind of courage it had to take to keep doing this, to keep speaking out, to keep calling on people, to keep organizing things, to keep being the voice in the face of a movement that had so much opposition to it. And in his letter from a Birmingham jail, you, you read him calling on people of faith and using scripture as the metaphor by which he helped to motivate himself to keep going. He was trusting that God was using him even though the circumstances were terrible and it would have been easier to quit. Courage is an inner resolution to go forward in spite of obstacles and frightening situations. I also thought a lot about how much I've learned about courage from a lot of the African colleagues that I had at Luther Seminary. One of the great things about studying at Luther Seminary was most of the people that I got to study with were from Africa, church leaders from Africa. And one of my best friends, a guy that was in my class, his name was Mesfin, he was from Ethiopia. He had this unbelievable story of how he became a Christian. I mean, I can't, he, he became a Christian, he was an agnostic and grew up in a communist community, and he became a Christian as a teenager, and he ended up spending five years in jail without any real due process simply because he became a Christian person. And God rescued him from jail through some miraculous circumstances, and he ended up becoming a leader in the Ethiopian church, which... If you know anything about the Christian faith in Ethiopia, you know that Christian faith is exploding there. In the church that he was a part of, Mikanayesu, there's over a million people who became Christians in Ethi just in Ethiopia. And the same story in Tanzania and Kenya and Angola and all these other places that I've met people from. And then he went to London and worked for the church there. And then he came to the U.S. and he had to learn English. And he's doing a Ph.D. in foreign language after having been imprisoned and gone to several countries, him and his wife traveling to the U.S., not knowing anything about it, barely having a job, because he believed so strongly that God was training him so that he could go back to Ethiopia and be part of the amazing thing that the Holy Spirit was doing there. I had to drive eight minutes from my house to Luther Seminary, and sometimes I had to try to get the kids to school first. These these guys, and it was mostly guys from Africa, were so inspiring to me because they, they, they had given up so much and they clearly had so, way more courage than I ever would have had to follow what God asked them to do, to learn languages, 
and deal with political problems, um, and then to get ready to go right back into that. When my one friend graduated, uh, he was from Myanmar, he was going back knowing that Christians were being killed in Myanmar that month. But that's why he came. He came to get trained so we could go back in. I have learned so much more from people who didn't grow up in a relatively comfortable Western society about what it means to have courage. And maybe for some of us, we need to lean on some of those people that we know to help them, to let them to teach us what it's like to follow Jesus in the 21st century. I could go on and on about this. There are so many stories of people in this congregation, like Nicole shared this morning, people who are facing cancer, people who are facing financial problems, people who are facing relational problems, people who are just having to have the courage to look inside themselves and deal with some stuff that's going on inside themselves that it takes a lot of courage to tell somebody else or to confess to Jesus what's really happening in their heart and in their minds. This is a courageous con congregation. You are a courageous group of people. And you're regularly inspiring the rest of us in the ways in which you're willing to step into things that you're afraid of. So Jesus doesn't ask us just to get rid of our fear or pretend it's not there. He's actually empowering us to step into those storms, isn't he? I have one more point, and then I'll invite the band to come back up. The last thing that Jesus is trying to do, I think, in this story in helping people deal with their fear is that he's asking them to believe. He's asking them to believe, just like he was asking them to believe while he's feeding the 5,000. I want you to believe that I am who I say I am, that I am the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who can rescue you from anything. And I don't blame them for this, but it's only after the storm calms down that they say what? Truly you are the Son of God. Hey, I'm like that too, aren't you? When you look back and all the things work out, it's easier to go, hey, yeah, I wasn't afraid. Truly you are the Son of God. But man, for us in the 21st century, we have to be able to say, truly you are the Son of God while the storm is still raging, right? We have to have courage that is given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit to step out into storms and still say, before the storm calms down, truly you are the Son of God and we're going forward anyway because we trust Jesus and we know that he's been there. Let me invite the band to come back up. I want to finish by saying there's lots of ways to deal with fear in your lives, and if you Google it or find a bookstore, if there are bookstores still left, you'll find shelves of shelves and shelves of things that say, here's how you deal with fear in your life. And lots of them come down to you just kind of finding it within you somewhere to deal with it. You know what I'm saying? And I don't want you to leave this morning thinking that's the distinctly Christian way to deal with fear, because it isn't. Jesus is saying, here's how you deal with fear. You recognize I'm with you. You step into the things that you're afraid of. And you believe that I can, can solve it, that I can be with you, and that no matter how the circumstances go, whether they get better or they get worse, I've been there, I've already won victory, and in the end, we will all be healed and we will all live together in the new heavens and in the new earth. That's the distinctly Christian response to fear. It's not that we're all more courageous than anybody else, but that we have faith in somebody who has 
courage to give us. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's learning to trust Jesus in the midst of our fears. Can we say that together before we finish? I'll say it slowly. You say after me. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's trusting Jesus in the midst of our fears. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, there's a lot to be afraid of. There's a lot of fears in this room right now, but in this moment, as a family, God, as a church, we turn to you. We look to you in the midst of our storms. We desperately need you to reassure us that you're with us, that you believe that we can step into the things that are, that are scaring us, God, and that you are sovereign, you are king over all things. We believe that you are the Son of God who sits on the right hand of the Father, interceding for us day and night. We believe that you are the Son of God who has already conquered death, resurrected from the dead, inviting us to trust you with our lives no matter what we have going on, knowing that ultimate victory is ours because of our faith in you. We don't get this, God, because we deserve it, but simply because you love us. Help us to believe. Help us to have faith. Help us to have courage in the face of our fears. Make your name great through regular people who have the courage to go forward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.